This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boris Johnson takes centre stage in Manchester as he continues to deny the UK is in crisis. I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. We need to remember how and why we've been able to back people through this pandemic at all. It was because we Conservatives fixed the economy, we repaired the damage that Labour left behind. The Prime Minister just exited his specially made stage, promising a change of direction for the UK, with barely a mention of the fuel and food shortages hitting the country. One thing was clear, Johnson wanted the limelight and his ministers were under orders to be on their best behaviour at this conference, meaning, don't outshine me. So, were all his cabinet happy to bow to the King? And as the Conservatives continue to beat the levelling up drum, Aubrey Allegretti looks into why some Tory MPs are worried they're not doing enough to keep the red wall seats they gained in 2019. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. Right, let's get straight to it. Boris Johnson has just finished speaking rather passionately to a hall full of seemingly adoring fans. So I stole some time from my colleague, The Guardian's political editor, Heather Stewart, to get her thoughts. Heather, first thoughts on that speech? Well, I mean, it was classic Boris Johnson, wasn't it? It was high energy. It was delivered fast. It was sort of peppered with, you know, sort of cultural references. I can tell you something. Margaret Thatcher would not have ignored the meteorite that has just crashed through the public finances. She would have wagged her finger. You know, a little spattering of poetry, lots of jokes. And the general message, it was just a sort of optimistic one. You know, we're going to build back better is their slogan, but he tried to put a little, little bit of sort of flesh on those bones, talked about housing, infrastructure, skills and so on. We're announcing today a levelling up premium of up to £3,000 to send the best maths and science teachers to the places that need them most. I mean, it was, it was quite jarring in a sense because it was a very, uh, it was a sort of dark hall, wasn't it, with kind of stage lighting, very dramatic, lots of uh, members holding up placards they've been given beforehand saying build back better and it had the sense of a sort of post-election victory rally and yet of course we know out there 
in the world. You know, there are petrol shortages and there are empty shelves and there's the universal credit cut that goes through today, which is taking £20 a week off uh, 5 million odd families. So it was, it was it had a sort of jarring effect. But in there, in the hall, it had this sort of upbeat, high energy, optimistic feel to it. And at one point we went from the idea that the Conservatives are getting social care done to a, a, a weird aside about uh, Cruella de Vil talking about tackling pet theft. Uh, do you think people at home will understand what he's talking about half the time? No, I'm sure they won't. But most people at home won't. won't most sensible people, unlike us, won't have sat through the whole thing. And they'll see the clips that are picked for the news. And, and there were lots of things that go down extremely well with the, with the party base. And, and you know, the, those lines are aimed very much in the hall, I think. There were some impressive words and, and phrases in there. He, he was being quite a, a showman linguistically. Thanks to Rishi's super deduction, the pace is now accelerating massively as companies thrust the fibre optic vermicelli in the most hard to reach places. And- Which we'd, you would expect of a, a Boris Johnson speech, but did he actually talk about anything of note in relation to policy? There was barely any substantive policy in it, which was odd, really. But we were told before this conference that the real message was about getting the job done. That's one of the slogans that's emblazoned on this big conference hall here. And, um, you know, I think the sense was we've set out our programme. Here's the kind of Britain we're going to create. And and now we're sort of getting on with the job. Um, So I think they were consciously not wanting to sort of uh, make headlines in terms of new policy. It's all about creating a mood and kind of signalling determination about where they want to get to. And he was happy to make fun of some of his own cabinet. I'm thinking in particular here of John Bon Govey, um, talking about Michael Gove's uh, antics in a, in a Scottish nightclub. But he didn't really mention any of his cabinet's achievements. It was all about himself and 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 the government as a whole did you think that was unusual uh, compared to conference speeches of previous leaders so I just think there's a general sense here of a bit of a sort of cult of Boris, you know, a sort of personality cult or a very personalised approach to doing politics. And I think we saw that anyway during the 2019 general election campaign, which was very much all about him. Um, there was a sort of triumphalist video that kicked off the, his speech today. Um, I think Rishi Sunak popped up in it for, you know, a nanosecond, but it was really all about Boris. It was it was Boris shaking hands with builders and surrounded by activists. And of course, we've had this very odd thing here where most of the speakers during the week, most of the, the rest of the cabinet have spoken in this strange, quite small hall that only holds about 400 people, totally lacks any acoustics or atmosphere. And then today, there was a whole new stage set in a different part of the complex that had been built for Boris. And it was kind of dark in there with these dramatic lights. And, you know, he, he gets this great... This great crowd and the big screens and the lights and and you know everyone else is a, I mean literally a kind of sideshow and it, it did feel like that he didn't he didn't really name check I think he mentioned Pretty Patel very briefly but he didn't really name check any of his colleagues which was quite odd. He did however mention Keir Starmer a lot. Their leader like a seriously rattled bus conductor <laughs> put, pushed this way and that by a not that they have bus conductors anymore, unfortunately, but like a, serious, a seriously rattled bus conductor pushed this, there, this, way, this way and that by a Corbynista mob of sellotapes. And there were several personal insults, really, about Starmer. He called him a bus conductor. Um, he called him the captain of a, a, a ship that's been captured by Somali pirates. Uh, he was trying to paint him as an, as an Islington lawyer who was out of touch with the country. What did you make of the fact that he he went after Starmer in that way? Oh, Starmer Chameleon, that was another one. Yeah, I I think there's two things they're trying to do. So one is to caricature 
Starmer as kind of indecisive and a bit all over the place on decisions. So um, the government feels it was an absolute gift to them that Keir Starmer was was against or was certainly uh, very sceptical about the big reopening that they did in July and whether that was a good idea. You know, Labour said that was reckless with hindsight. I mean, it, it may have been reckless at the time. With hindsight, it's kind of gone all right for them. They think that's a, a powerful attack line for them, and they say that at every possible opportunity. That you know, if it was up, to, if it was up to Keir Starmer, we'd still be all sort of you know in lockdown. Is- what they suggest. Um, and the other thing is is to do with Starmer's relationship with the rest of his party. So that they feel that Jeremy Corbyn was a much easier opponent for them in some ways. They're very, very keen to show that he is still in hock to that left wing of the Labour Party. And of course, Keir Starmer spent a lot of time in Brighton at the Labour conference last week trying to show that that's very not very much not the case that he's in charge that the you know the, the, the sort of lefties the fringe lefties are, have gone and both Boris Johnson today and Oliver Dowden earlier in the week have tried to say no actually this 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 Labour Party is, still has some of those those sort of quite left-wing ideas. He did also try to draw a dividing line didn't he between the Conservatives claiming that they want to level up the country which is their phrase for wanting to spread wealth and opportunity throughout the country. He tried to contrast that policy with Labour saying that they're a party who want to level down. In their souls, they don't like levelling up. They don't like levelling up. They like levelling down. Do you think that is a clever attack line? I I don't think the public know what levelling up means. I'm not even sure the government knows what levelling up means, to be honest. I mean, I think what he was trying to say is Labour's in favour of taxing the rich or Labour's not not pro-business, I think, was sort of roughly what, what... he was talking about Labour wants to cut down the tall poppies, he said, but I, I'm not sure whether how meaningful that is, particularly coming from a government that is just about to raise taxes in April, of course, to, to pay for the NHS and social care. Yeah. Did you think it was odd as well that he was focused on how unequal society is and how unequal the country is regionally when the Conservatives have been in power now for 11 years? It's not just that there's a gap between London and the South East and the rest of the country. There are aching gaps within the regions themselves. Yeah, this is part of his kind of year zero strategy. They did it very much in 2019. They managed to present him as the change candidate, even though he's part of a party that, as you say, has been in been in power since 2010. And there was quite a lot of that today. It was it was as if he just noticed, you know, that <laughs> there were big gaps between life expectancy in different parts of the UK, uh, for example. I mean, uh, you know, public health ex- experts, I think, would tell you that part of the reason for that is to do with the um, uh, austerity and the spending cuts that we had that saw a lot of supportive things like short start and, and you know sort of community support taken away for people and that have seen reeling income stagnate and so so on so you know it's pretty extraordinary to have a Tory Prime Minister saying you know, sort of pointing and saying look at this what a terrible injustice when of course they've been in power for so long but somehow somehow it seems to work for him. And what about the slogan it, it's been absolutely ubiquitous at com- conference build back better and then there was a series of word plays during the speech about build back burger build back beaver does that have any meaning to people? I mean, and he's also, Boris Johnson has also done a series of very short videos during conference. There was Build Back Bitter, where he held a pint of beer. I'm not sure how, how, I'm not sure how often he's actually drunk a pint of beer in real life, but Build Back Butter, Build Back Batter, I think was another one. And it's about this idea of creating a different Britain, which again is to do with this revisionist thing of, you know, I'm not like these guys that have been in charge for 11 years, I'm, I'm creating something different. But by the time you're starting to talk about bitter and beavers and everything else, it becomes completely, it becomes completely meaningless, I think. Does it play into Keir Starmer's accusation that Boris Johnson is, is a trivial leader? 
it does to some extent because it, 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 there were lots of gags in the speech and yeah, these sort of silly videos and silly slogans and you know everybody here laps it up and absolutely loves it. I suspect if the situation out there in the world continues to deteriorate, so for example, if inflation starts to rise, mortgage rates go up, if the supply chain shortages turn out not to be a flash in the pan but something rather longer lasting that cover other sectors and so on, you know Boris Johnson could start to look quite silly. And Boris Johnson has been the king at this conference, but we should perhaps take a look at some of the various different ministers and what they said in their speeches. Probably the most notable was Priti Patel and her announcement of an investigation into um, the Sarah Everard uh, murder by a serving police officer, what the force missed there, examining why Wayne Cousins had not been identified as a sexually aggressive predator and, uh, and a sort of wider look at the culture of misogyny in the Met. But the opposition are looking for a statutory inquiry there. And it was also interesting that her announcement came after Boris Johnson said on Sunday that there was no need for an inquiry. What do you make of that shift in in policy there? I think there was certainly a sense in government that the Met had handled the aftermath of of that case extremely badly um, and and not communicated well and not had a good enough explanation of what had gone wrong. Um, And I think there just had been really intense pressure to do something broader that that was more independent. I mean, Labour, of course, as you say, say that it should be a statutory inquiry with, with greater powers. But I, I think there was just intense pressure on the government to do more on that. Rishi Sunak then, that was a for, fairly forgettable speech on Monday. Um, it didn't contain a big policy like Rachel Reeves' promise of uh, billions of pounds for green investment. Um, but he did uh, come with a warning that um, the purse strings would have to be tightened, didn't he? What did you make of that? Yeah, it was odd. You know, the Chancellor's speech is usually a really big moment at conference and it just just felt slightly strange that there was there was no new policy announcement in it at all. I think the talk of still wanting to be a low-tax party, wanting to repair the public finances is, is um, to some extent aimed at people here because there are rumblings on the Tory grassroots about these ta- tax increases that they've announced. Um, and he also had a sort of, there was a bit of Boris Johnson style optimism as well because he's talked about the sort of tech economy and how he wants to help to create that but yeah it was it was strange in that in the often it's a big dramatic moment and you get some some policy and and uh, there really wasn't any then we've got Dominic Raab um he's the fairly despondent deputy prime minister who was demoted from foreign secretary to justice secretary in recent weeks he gave us a speech suggesting he wanted to tear up the human rights act and uh, he's also been put in charge of a strategy about violence against women. But this morning on the radio, he got a bit confused, didn't he, about misogyny. There was a suggestion that there was no need to make it a hate crime, whether whether it's abuse against women or men. And he's got in trouble. He's been criticised for suggesting that misogyny applies to both when, in fact, it's not. Do you think he's the right man to be in charge of this area of policy? Well, it's not very encouraging, is it? I don't think <laughs> it's certainly what, you know, feminist campaigners have been suggesting. And I do remember during the Tory leadership campaign where he ran against Boris Johnson, of course, him being asked whether he was a feminist and really sort of struggling to say that he was. And so it it, it does make you wonder what his sort of instincts are and whether he's the right person in this role. So Heather, who do you think has had the most successful party conference over the last couple of weeks? Is it Labour or the Tories? 
I mean, I think both would think they've done well on their own terms. So I think here, Starmer probably achieved what he wanted to achieve when he went into conference, which was, you know, he won these internal battles broadly against the left of his party, changed the rules to make it harder for them to influence the leadership and other things in future. Whether he was so successful in a sort of outward looking, pitching to the public way, I'm not quite so sure. It's difficult, very difficult as leader of the opposition to get a hearing. Uh, Boris Johnson, I think, will feel he's had a very good week. Heather Stewart, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Rowena. After the break, Aubrey Allegretti explains why some Tory MPs are worried about keeping the red wall blue. We'll be right back. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian. Now, Boris Johnson has been clear. He wants to level up the country. Some Tory MPs are issuing warnings, though, like the Mayor of Tees Valley, Ben Houchen. Houchen thinks the message is strong, but the actions need to be stronger. If you've taken that decision for the first time to vote Conservative when you're in all likelihood your parents, your grandparents, your great-great-grandparents have always voted Labour, you want to be able to go to the polling booth in 2023, 2024, whenever the election's going to be, and say, I knew I was right to break with... Because that's a big step for people to make. Knew I was right to break that, and I knew I was right to vote Conservative. Now, they're not just going to do that. We need to give people... There is still, you know, potentially two, two and a half years from a general election, and there are lots that you can do to signpost that levelling up is happening. Because let's also not forget, if you're going to do levelling up properly, it's a 10, 15, 20, some people say 30-year programme, you have to get buy-in from people by being able to see physical changes to the next election so people give you the goodwill and the credit to vote for you again. On Tuesday, The Guardian's political correspondent, Aubrey Allegretti, spoke to Sebastian Payne, the Whitehall editor of the Financial Times. Sebastian recently published a book called Broken Heartlands, A Journey Through Labour's Lost England, and he has been looking at the problems facing the Conservatives as they try to keep tabs on former Labour strongholds. I don't know about you, but it feels like both Labour and Tory conferences have felt very mid-term conferences. Starmer basically taking the opportunity to look you know, deeply inwards at a time when some people said he should have been looking outwards. Boris Johnson, again, trying to sort of consolidate the deliveries that have been made so far, but also trying to show that in the next two, three years, whenever the next election comes, uh, there's going to be more of those sort of deliveries. Do you think it's a case of the Conservatives holding on to as many seats as they've got now or damage limitation because they've got such a big majority? Or is anybody really thinking actually they could get more? Both, actually. So first of all, 
I've classified the red wall seats and there is a very clear thing that what is the red wall because it, it people use it to describe anything. They use it to describe Darlington, the northeastern railway town which had a Conservative MP from 1983 to 1992 so that is certainly not somewhere that's really flipped for the first time. But I do think there are more gains. You know, people I spoke to in the shadow cabinet in the run-up to the 2019 election were worried it could be a Scotland as they described to me in the book and the whole thing could just go and in some respects many Labour MPs were saved by the Brexit party. If they hadn't polled so well, then Yvette Cooper, Ed Miliband um, would have lost their seats at the last election. So there is a case that if the trends we saw that define the Red Wall continue, uh, and I think Hartlepool might suggest that they may well do, then there are more that could go. But I think ultimately that 80-seat majority was certainly prompted by the particular circumstances of get Brexit done and Jeremy Corbyn's unpopularity in the Red Wall. Both those things won't exist again. Keir Starmer does seem to poll better nationally as leaders. You'd have to think that they would win at least some of them back, but then also maybe gain some more. Yeah, I suppose you're right. It's not just a sort of they'll a lump sum, you know, they will lose or they will gain. There'll be losses and gains in different areas on both sides, won't there? But we're obviously at Tory party conference here in Manchester. What are the sort of big plans that the Conservatives have got up their sleeve uh, to try and make sure that, you know, come the next election, they make a clean sweep again? Well, that is the question of the conference that hasn't really been answered by anyone. You know, <laughs> We're three days in. and <laughs> We're still, still shrugging our shoulders here. Fundamentally, they've set out these kind of buckets of things they want to do from strong local leadership to inward investment to civic pride. They're all quite palpable things, though, and it's quite hard to measure what success looks like. Essentially, they want to do some stuff as much as they can between now and the next election, build some tangible, physical things, be it roads, railways, even if they're not complete. People can see stuff there. Then they also want to focus on the bigger problems, which is productivity, which is skills, which is inward investment. But my only concern about this whole agenda is we've tried all these things before. Ever since the Second World War, this question has vexed Labour and Conservative governments. And no one's really come up with an answer to make us a more equal economy that we're not all just reliant on London and the South East. And again, five to ten years is not a huge period of time to try and do such a big change in how the country operates. I think the point you make about levelling up is really, really interesting. Dominic Robb, who was obviously the Deputy Prime Minister, reshuffled uh, a few weeks ago in his only fringe meeting of the conference on Tuesday, said that levelling up isn't a new idea. It's something that Thatcher tried to do. And ultimately, it's not necessarily about kind of helping a particular group of people. It's trying to lift everyone up. But if you do that, inflation rises and the gap potentially still remains the same. So that's quite a tough message to sell, both to London, which you're saying we need to level up other parts of the country, and to other parts of the country who are going, hang on, so you're leveling up London as well? It's really interesting how much Conservatives at this conference are leaning in to increasing wages. Um, but of course, those with longer memories of the 1970s will know that if you increase wages, they're out tackling productivity, then you just get a massive inflation bubble. And there's a fear that could be the sort of place that we're heading to. But they've made the calculation that voters will want to go along with this and the idea that people want you know something based on lower migration higher wages but the disruption to get there is going to be quite big and I do wonder you know Boris Johnson's got this big majority still clearly ahead in the opinion polls getting through you know 
five to six months of disruption while the labour market begins to fix itself. Are ministers going to be ready for that and to pay a political price for that as well? On your question, Aubrey, about London and what happens there, this is really the test. Can you do both sides of that coalition? That obviously many of those seats in the southeast that were won under David Cameron and Theresa May have stayed with the Conservatives. And I think the potency of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership was quite good on that. But if you think of suites like Peterborough and Swindon, you know, Keir Starmer is a natural person who could appeal to those kind of voters who's quite steady, straightforward, not too radical. And I do wonder increasingly, you know, the, the conversation about tax here is definitely present. It's just not very vocal. It's just not very vocal. When you speak to ministers off the record, you speak to activists and you speak to Red Wall MPs, they are worried about this and they do wonder if the government has made the wrong decision. One of the biggest questions cabinet ministers and journalists and everyone listening to this will be thinking is, why on earth is the Conservative Party riding so high in the polls, given all of the challenges and the struggles that they faced for literal months, if not years since the election? Any insights? Well, when you've spent £400 billion and propped up the whole country's wages for 18 months, it's not a surprise that people are quite grateful. And don't forget, the ONS projected that unemployment was going to hit 12%. And actually, it only hit, I think it's sort of about 4 or 5% now, you know. So it's really a very different economic picture than it could have been post the pandemic. And, you know, people are savvy enough to differentiate about who is to really blame for certain things. But I think they will be quite unforgiving if this disruption does continue quite significantly. And the fact that fuel is starting to get back to normal, the government's got a grip on it, that's a good sign for where the Tories stand. But if that keeps going on and if shelves keep being empty, then, you know, the natural law of politics does eventually have to kick in at some point. And I think it's also the fact that there is, you know, Labour is still a very divided party. And until Labour looks a bit more unified, it's not just arguing with itself, then people are still going to see the Tories, you know, they're in the country. It's OK. Maybe it could be a bit better. In that case, they'll still keep backing Boris Johnson. Big challenge then for Boris Johnson. Thanks very much, Seb. Thank you. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Politics Weekly Extra on Friday as Jonathan Friedland and Joni Grieve discuss why the Democrats are imploding over an infrastructure bill. But for now, I want to thank our guests Heather Stewart, Aubrey Allegretti, Sebastian Payne and Ben Houchin. The producer this week was Danielle Stevens. I'm Rowena Mason signing off from Manchester. Thanks as always for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.